Hello, and welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. And I'm and I'm sick, so I'm sorry ahead of time that you may have to hear my lozenge or my terrible voice, but we're working through it today. <laughs> it just sounds extra smoky. <laughs> extra, extra smoky. <laughs> I have something small today because Laura has um, a, quite a large story. So... All that I have is just basically um, a little article that I found that was published on October 19 of this year, 2022, uh, Alpina men charged with the murder of two local women. So what this says is that it's in Lansing. Two Alpina uh, area men have been charged in the deaths of two local women who disappeared over a year ago. Um, The Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel and Alpina County Prosecutor Cynthia Mazinski announced today that Brad Srebnik, 36, of Alpena, is accused of murdering Bryn Bills in August of 2021. Srebnik and Joshua Wurgau, 35, also of Alpena, are accused of the murdering of Abby Hill in September of that same year to prevent Hill from revealing information about the murder of Bills. So I guess he was talking too much to somebody and they, I don't know. Huh. Sremnik and Wurgau will be arraigned in the 88th District Court before a Judge Alan M. Curtis. And this was on October 20th. So I haven't heard any updates yet. I didn't do too much of a search beyond this article. I'll have to see if there's any updates and update next time. But Srebnik is being charged with the following of one count of first-degree premeditated homicide in the murder of Bryn Bills, a felony that carries a life sentence without the possibility of parole, one count of first-degree premeditated homicide for the murder of Abby Hill, a felony that carries a life sentence without the possibility of parole, one count of disinternment and mutilation of a dead body for the burying of Bryn Bills, a felony that carries a maximum penalty of 10 years, one count of felony firearm, second offense, using a firearm in the commissioning of a felony, five years consecutive for any underlying charges, and one count of felony firearm possession, a felony with a maximum sentence of five years. Joshua Wurgau is charged with the following, one count of first-degree premeditated homicide for the murder of Abby Hill, a felony that carries a life sentence without the possibility of parole, one count of disinternment and mutilation of a dead body for the burying of Bryn Bills, a felony that carries the maximum sentence of 10 years, one count of being an accessory, uh, ah, I can't even talk, an accessory after the fact to a felony for the hiding of Bryn Bills' body, a felony carrying a maximum sentence of five years, one count of felony firearm possession, a felony carrying a maximum sentence of five years, and one count of felony firearm second offense notice, using a firearm in the commissioning of a felony, five years consecutive to any underlying charges. Both Srebnik and Wurgau are habitual offenders. They said there is no charge or punishment that will alleviate the grief felt by the families and loved ones of these two women, but I am committed to holding responsible their killers and will exhaust all resources to to see justice delivered, said Nessel. 
This case requires exceptional resources, and I am happy to lend the support and services of de- my department uh, to the community to prosecute this case. Yeah. So there's, there's just, it's not much, but I'll have to look further into it, see if there's been any free, like newer updates. But Yeah, that'll be interesting to see how the trial goes for that. Yeah. All right, so this is a very long one, but there was a lot to it, and I felt like it was all kind of important. I did cut out a lot because it was huge, but FYI, I stole most of this from Wikipedia (laughs) (laughs) and a couple other sources, Uh, so if there are errors, I apologize. I got this from Wikipedia because I have a full-time job, (laughs) and I just don't have time to spend weeks researching this, so to to guide us into this slowly the long hot summer of 1967 refers to the more than 150 race riots that occurred across the united states that summer in june there were riots in atlanta boston cincinnati buffalo and tampa in july there were riots in birmingham chicago detroit Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Newark, New Britain, New York City, Plainfield, Rochester, and Toledo. Good grief. Yeah. And one of the most destructive riots of that summer, and the one I'm going to talk about today, took place in July in Detroit. The 1967 Detroit Riot, also known as the 12th Street Riot or Detroit Rebellion, was the bloodiest of the urban riots in the United States during that long hot summer of 1967. Composed mainly of confrontations between black residents and the Detroit Police Department, it began in the early morning hours of Sunday, July 23, 1967. The trigger event was a police raid of an unlicensed after-hours bar on the city's near west side and exploded into one of the deadliest and most destructive riots in American history, lasting five days three days longer than Detroit's 1943 race riot 24 years earlier. Oh, wow. Yeah. The riot was prominently featured in the news with live television coverage, extensive newspaper reporting, and stories in Time and Life magazines. And to go with that, the staff of the Detroit Free Press won the 1968 Pulitzer Prize for general local reporting in its coverage of this. So to give some background into essentially what led to this. There's quite a bit. The great migration that took place between 1910 and 1970 was the movement of roughly 6 million African Americans out of the rural South to the urban Northeast, Midwest, and West. When the great migration hit Detroit, the city experienced a rapidly increasing population, which caused a shortage of housing. African Americans encountered housing discrimination, keeping people out of certain neighborhoods, and prevented most African Americans from buying their own homes. The presence of the Ku Klux Klan members, which I did not know much about them being in Michigan or anything like that. Oh, yeah. This was a whole thing to me. There was was one of the members' houses near where I lived. Oh. I heard about that as a teen. Yeah. Okay. So we don't get much of that in the UP. No. <laughs> Nobody's up here. <laughs> right. It's like, right. do you want to live in the freezing cold? No? Okay. They stay close to cities, typically. Right. Imagine most right. people that don't want snow live downstate. <laughs> right. 
yeah, we're all loggers and uh, you know, wild west up here, essentially. So the presence of KKK members furthered racial tensions and violence. Discriminatory practices and the effects of segregation that resulted from them contributed significantly to the racial tensions in the city before the riot. Segregation also encouraged harsher policing in African-American neighborhoods, escalating frustrations that led to the riot. 1956 Mayor Orville Hubbard of Dearborn boasted to the Montgomery Advertiser that, quote, Negroes can't get in here. These people are so anti-colored, much more than you in Alabama. 1956 Dearborn. Okay. Ugh. Yeah. Mayor Jerome Cavanaugh was elected in 1961 and brought some reform to the police department, led by new Detroit Police Commissioner George Edwards. Detroit received millions in federal funds through President Johnson's Great Society programs and invested them mostly in the inner city where poverty and social problems were concentrated. By the 1960s, many black people had advanced into better union and professional jobs. The city had a prosperous black middle class, higher than normal wages for unskilled black workers due to the success of the auto industry. Two black congressmen, three black judges, two black members on the Detroit Board of Education, a housing commission that was 40% black, and 12 black representatives uh, representing Detroit in the Michigan legislature. In May 1967, the federal administration ranked housing for the black community in Detroit above that of Philadelphia, New York City, Chicago, and Cleveland. Nicholas Hood, the sole black member of the nine-member Detroit Common Council, praised the Kavanaugh administration for its willingness to listen to concerns of the inner city. Weekends prior to the riot, Mayor Kavanaugh had said that residents did not, quotes, need to throw a brick to communicate with City Hall. Uh, <laughs> We're just proving, I guess, maybe not so much. Yeah. However, in 1964, Rosa Parks, who had moved to Detroit in the late 50s from Alabama, told an interviewer, I don't feel a great deal of difference here. Housing segregation is just as bad, and it seems more noticeable in the larger cities. The improvements mostly benefited wealthier black Detroiters, and poor black Detroiters remained frustrated by the social conditions in Detroit. Despite the modest improvements described, segregation, police brutality, and racial tensions were rampant in 1960s Detroit. Yeah. Prior to the riot, Mayor Kavanaugh's appointees, George Edwards and Ray Girardin, worked for reform. Edwards tried to recruit and promote black police officers, but refused to establish a requested civilian police review board. In trying to discipline police officers accused of brutality, he turned the police department against him, as many whites perceived his policies too soft on crime. Uh-uh. In other words, too hard on them. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> just. Oh, you'll see plenty. There's plenty of police brutality during the riots I'll be talking uh. about. But in 1967, 93% of the force was white, although 30% of the city's residents were black. Incidents of police brutality caused black residents to feel at risk. They resented many police officers who they felt talked down to them, addressing men as boys and women as honey and baby. That would drive me insane. Uh. 
Police made street searches of groups of young men and single women complained of being called prostitutes for simply walking on the street, which tag that along with being called honey and baby and then being accused of a prostitute for being on the street would drive any woman insane. The police frequently arrested people who did not have proper identification. The local press reported several questionable shootings and beatings of black citizens by officers in the years before 1967. After the riot, a Detroit Free Press survey showed residents reported police brutality as the number one problem they faced in the period leading up to the riot. Black citizens complained that police did not respond to their calls as quickly as those of white citizens. They believed that the police profited from vice and other crime in black neighborhoods and press accusations of corruption and connections to organized crime weakened their trust in police. On July 1st, a prostitute was killed and rumors spread the police had shot her. The police said she was murdered by local pimps. Black residents felt police raids of after-hours drinking clubs were racially biased actions. Since the 1920s, such clubs had become important parts of Detroit's social life for black citizens. Although they started with prohibition, they continued because of discrimination against black people in service at many Detroit bars, restaurants, and other places. On top of that, due to changes in the industry and the highway system, unemployment in Detroit rose and the population fell by 179,000 between 1950 and 1960, dropping further through 1970. By the time of the riot in Detroit, unemployment among black men was more than double that among white men. The neighborhood of Black Bottom was replaced by Lafayette Park in an urban renewal project. Its loss resulted in racial tensions because of the dislocation of community networks as well as loss of housing. By 1967, distinct neighborhood boundaries were known, whether visible, as in the case of 8 Mile, Wyoming, or invisible, as in the case of Duquandre Road. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I'm sorry, Detroit people. With black and white people culturally and physically separated, racial tensions were high in the city. As a result, African-American neighborhoods were overrun, high in density, and often poor in health quality. For example, the neighborhood around 12th Street had a population density that was twice the city average. And I mean, yeah, there's still so many things that I'm hearing from this that's still very much an issue in today's society. And it makes me ill hearing this even more so knowing how much we haven't really gotten better. Yeah. In many ways. A lot of inner city spots. Still Especially have with these issues. With health issues too, you know, black women have such a higher chance of dying from, you know, giving birth, from having issues, because, you know, women as a whole are already not believed, you know, when it comes to the medical issues, like, oh, it's all in your head. I've gotten that. Mm-hmm. Um it's disgusting. And hearing this just makes me even matter because I'm like, we really haven't changed much. Okay, now to get into the actual start of the riot. That was a lot of background. I apologize for the history lesson. Uh, <laughs> but it all kind of le- it snowballs. It leads into one thing into the next. So right. 
In the early hours of Sunday, on 3.45 a.m., July 23, 1967, Detroit Police Department, or DPD, officers raided an unlicensed weekend drinking club known locally as a blind pig, a.k.a. speakeasy, in the office of the United Community League for Civic Action at 9125 12th Street. Police expected a few inside, instead finding a party of 82 people celebrating the return of two local GIs from the Vietnam War. How dare they celebrate that? Right. How dare they at all have any sort of celebration? Yeah. She says sarcastically. (laughs) I want to make that known. I'm not being serious. It's heavy sarcasm there. Yeah, heavy. The police decided to arrest everyone present. While they were arranging for transportation, a crowd of onlookers gathered on the street. Later, in a memoir, William Walter Scott III, a doorman whose father was running the blind pig, took responsibility for starting the riot by inciting the crowd and throwing a bottle at a police officer. That was in the Wikipedia. That's the only reason I put it in there. After the DPD left, the crowd began looting an adjacent clothing store with full-scale looting throughout the neighborhood beginning shortly thereafter. Michigan State Police, Wayne County Sheriff's Department, and the Michigan Army National Guard were alerted, but because it was a Sunday, it took hours to assemble enough manpower. The DPD, without enough support and believing the riot would soon end, just stood and watched. Police did not make their first arrest until 7 a.m., three hours after the raid on the blind pig. The pastor of Grace Episcopal Church along 12th Street reported that he saw a gleefulness in throwing stuff and getting stuff out of buildings. Police conducted several sweeps along 12th Street, which proved ineffective because of the unexpectedly large numbers of people outside. The first major fire broke mid-afternoon in a grocery store at the corner of 12th Street and Atkinson. The crowd prevented firefighters from extinguishing it, and soon more smoke filled the skyline. The local news initially avoided reporting on the disturbance, so not to inspire copycat violence, but the rioting started to expand to other parts of the city, including looting of retail and grocery stores elsewhere. By Sunday afternoon, news had spread, and people attending events such as a Fox Theater Motown Review and Detroit Tigers baseball game were warned to avoid certain areas of the city. Mayor Jerome Cavanaugh stated that the situation was critical, but not yet out of control. At 7.45 p.m. that night, Cavanaugh enacted a citywide 9 p.m. to 5.30 a.m. curfew, prohibited sales of alcohol and firearms, and informally restricted business activity in recognition of the serious civil unrest engulfing sections of the city. A number of adjoining communities also enacted curfews. There was significant white participation in the rioting and looting, raising question as to whether the event fits in the classical race riot category. Well, that's why they 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 saw an opportunity. Yeah, it started like, with one thing and just got out of control. Right. Because people are animals. <laughs> Monday, July 24th, Michigan State Police and Wayne County Sheriff's Department were called in to assist the overwhelmed Detroit police force. As the violence spread, police began to make arrests to clear rioters off the streets, housing the detainees in makeshift jails. People were detained without being brought to recorder's court for arraignment. Some gave false names, making the process of identifying those arrested difficult 
because of the need to take and check fingerprints. Canadian police were asked to help check fingerprints as well. Sorry, that just makes me laugh. <laughs> just give them wrong names. Yeah. Make, make their job much harder. That's just so funny to me. Sorry, I find that hilarious. Yeah. Well, 1967, it'd be a lot easier to fake. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, my name is Jim. Yeah. Jim John. <laughs> Jimmy John. I make subs. Um. <laughs> uh, all right. Police began to take pictures of looters arrested, the arresting officer, in the stolen goods to speed up the process and po- po- uh, and postpone the paperwork. And popo the paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> this is too much. I can't talk. All right. More than 80% of those arrested were black. About 12% were women. Michigan National Guardsmen were not authorized to arrest people, so state troopers and police officers made all arrests without discriminating between civilians and criminals. So pretty much if you were out, you were getting arrested. You were getting arrested, right. And I'm sure they left the white people alone. I'm just going to say. It is a very small percentage. Yeah. Yeah. Michigan Governor George Romney and President Lyndon B. Johnson initially disagreed about the legality of sending in federal troops. Johnson said he could not send federal troops in without Romney's declaring a state of insurrection to meet compliance with the Insurrection Act. On July 24th, 40 National Guardsmen were pinned down by snipers at Henry Ford Hospital. The hospital stayed open throughout and treated many injuries. The violence escalated, resulting in some 483 fires, 231 incidents reported per hour, and 1,800 arrests. Then you see those numbers, and it's just chaos. Looting and arson were widespread, and Black-owned businesses were not spared. One of the first stores looted in Detroit was Hardy's Drugstore, owned by Black people and known for filling prescriptions on credit. Detroit's leading Black-owned women's clothing store was burned, as was one of the city's best-loved Black restaurants. In the wake of the riots, a Black merchant said, you were going to get looted no matter what color you were. And it's you see that a lot now still with yeah. um, riots and stuff in other cities. There's no discrimination. They just go after whatever's there. Yeah. Um, firefighters of the Detroit Police Department who were attempting to fight the fires were shot at by rioters. During the riots, 2,498 rifles and 38 handguns were stolen from local stores. It was obvious that the city of Detroit Wayne County and the state of Michigan forces were unable to restore order. U.S. Representative John Conyers, a Democrat from Michigan, who was against federal troop deployment, attempted to ease tensions by driving along 12th Street with a loudspeaker, asking people to return to their homes. Oh, I mean, he was like, let's try this. Yeah. I mean, I can give him at least that. The guy truly... He was like, let's try to be nice. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't include it in here, but there was also a baseball player from the Detroit Tigers who was from that area that also went in his uniform after the game was done to try and get people to stop. But at that point, it's gone too far. So reportedly, Conyers stood on the hood of the car and shouted through a bullhorn. We're with you, but please, this is not the way to do things. Please go back to your homes. But the crowd refused to listen. 
No one is surprised. Conyers' car was pelted with rocks and bottles. Shortly before midnight on Monday, July 24th, President Johnson authorized the use of federal troops in compliance with the Insurrection Act of 1807, which authorizes the president to call in armed forces to fight an insurrection in any state against the government. Which is scary. (laughs) Yeah. Very. Yeah. This gave Detroit the distinction of being the only domestic American city to have been occupied by federal troops three times. The United States Army's 82nd Airborne Division and 101st Airborne Division had earlier been positioned at nearby Selfridge Air Force Base in Macomb County. Starting at 1.30 a.m. on Tuesday, July 25th, some 8,000 Michigan Army National Guardsmen were deployed. This was the biggest mistake, in my opinion, after seeing what happened. Later, their number would increase with 4,700 paratroopers from both the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions and 360 Michigan State Police officers. Chaos continued. Police were overworked and tired. Detroit police were found to have committed many acts of abuse against both blacks and whites who were in their custody. Although only 26 of the 7,000 arrests involved snipers, and not one person accused of sniping was successfully prosecuted, and the fear of snipers uh, precipitated many police searches. And that seemed to be the thing that the police and the army were most afraid of, um, just being shot at essentially, by people hiding with rifles. The searching for weapons caused many homes and vehicles to be scrutinized. Curfew violations were also common sparks to police brutality. The Detroit Police's 10th Precinct routinely abused prisoners, as mugshots later proved. Many injuries came after booking. Women were stripped and fondled while police officers took pictures. White landlords from New York visiting their buildings were arrested after a sniper call and beaten so horribly that their testicles were still black and blue two weeks after the incident. Oh, my God. So they're going after everybody. And in one of the, I think, the saddest stories from this, a four-year-old girl named Tanya Blanding was shot and killed during the riot while huddled in the living room of her second-floor apartment near the intersection of 12th and Euclid, in the heart of the original ride area. Sporadic sniper fire had been reported in the area earlier that evening and the previous night. Guardsmen reported one of their units under fire at the intersection and believed they had pinpointed it as coming from the apartment in which Tanya and her family lived. As a tank of the National Guard got into position in front of the building, one of the occupants of the blending apartment was said to light a cigarette. Guardsmen opened fire on the apartment with rifles and the tank's 50 caliber machine gun. By 1.20 in the morning, Tanya Blanding was dead. They didn't even bother to do any sort of check nope. to make sure that they were going to fire at the right place. Nope, they just fired into an apartment building. I want to say that I'm surprised. I'm not. Yeah. I wish I could say that, though. Yep. Sergeant Mortimer J. LeBlanc, 41, admitted firing the burst into the windows of the apartment where Tanya was found after another guardsman told him that sniper fire had come from there. Tanya's mother, June, filed a lawsuit for $100,000 in damages on the grounds that Sergeant LeBlanc fired negligently into the apartment. He was exonerated. 
there's so much I, I have <laughs> that rage. Yeah, this isn't that, even through the whole thing yet. This is just right. like a few days in. Oh, I have so many, so much rage. Yeah. Right now. Yep, that was me writing this. Wednesday, July 26th. Some believe violence escalated with the deployment of troops, although they brought rioting under control within 48 hours. Nearly all of the Michigan Army National Guard were white, inexperienced military, and did not have urban backgrounds, while the Army paratroopers were racially integrated and had seen service in Vietnam. This meant that while the Army paratroopers were at ease and could communicate easily, the National Guardsmen were not as effective and engaged in firefights with locals, resulting in the death of one guardsman. Of the 12 people troops shot and killed, only one was shot by a federal soldier. Army paratroopers were ordered not to load their weapons except under the direct order of an officer. The Cyrus Vance Report, a 140-page document published later that year, criticized the actions of the National Guardsmen who shot and killed nine civilians. The report was released to the press by Secretary of Defense Robert S. McNamara on September 12, 1967. A quote from the report said, Neither the Detroit Police, the Michigan State Police, nor the Michigan National Guard had representative numbers of Negro personnel in their ranks. I believe that this fact inhibited communication, and since the majority of rioters were Negro, tended to exaggerate the racial nature of the conflict. And I actually read through the report. That was page 53. And if you want to find it, you can Google it. It's through U.S. Department of Justice, Office of Justice Programs. It's uh, NCJ number 82468, in case anyone feels like looking that one up. The Michigan Civil Rights Commission, or the CRC, intervened to try to protect the rights of those arrested. The CRC was, surprise, surprise, not well received by police, who said they were interfering with police work. Uh. <laughs> By you think? Th- yeah. <laughs> y- you think? Yeah. No one is shocked. Um, right. By Thursday, July 27th, enough order had returned to the city that officers withdrew ammunition from the National Guardsmen stationed in the riot area. Troop withdrawal began on Friday, July 28th, the last day of the major fire in the riot, and Army troops were completely withdrawn by Saturday, July 29th. Unrest had spread from the city into adjoining suburbs and other areas of Michigan. Some rioting was reported in Highland Park and River Rouge, and heavier police presence was required after a bomb threat was phoned into a E.J. Corvette department store in Southgate. The state deployed National Guardsmen or other state police to other Michigan cities as simultaneous riots erupted in. Here's, here's this list. Pontiac, Flint, Saginaw and Grand Rapids, as well as Toledo and Lima, Ohio, New York City and Rochester, New York, Cambridge, Maryland, Englewood, New Jersey, Houston, Texas, and Tucson, Arizona. Reports of disturbances were made in more than two dozen cities. So now let's talk about the damage. That's a lot. In Detroit, an estimated 10,000 people participated in the riots, with an estimated 100,000 gathering to watch. So, see, nothing else to do. <laughs> just go out and You're watch just it. Just gather and watch. 
Like there are stray bullets. People are just being killed for standing there or arrested like, for just standing there and everyone. It makes me think of the meme, <laughs> the meme of Kim Kardashian searching for her earring and crying and her sister being like, there are people dying, Kim. Like, that's what it makes me think of. It just makes me go, there are people dying and you're just sitting there. Let's just, have some popcorn and watch this. Just like, a whole bunch just watching. It's so sick and twisted. Uh-huh. In a matter of days, 43 were dead. 33 of whom were black and more than 7,200 people were arrested. Again, most of them black. 1,189 people were injured. 407 of those were civilians. 289 suspects. 214 Detroit police officers. 134 Detroit firefighters. 55 Michigan National Guardsmen. 67 Michigan State Police Officers. 15 Wayne County Sheriff deputies and eight federal soldiers. So all people arrested, 6,528 adults and 703 juveniles. The youngest was four. And the oldest was 82. But you arrest a four-year-old. What are they going to do? Right. Or even an 82-year-old. It's not like they're going to heft anything heavy and start breaking windows. Like, what? Oh, my God. What did you just say to them at that point? Go home. Go what home. What is, like, like no common sense? It, it's insane. Like, none. There was, there, was no, there was no sense in the matter at all. Like, all of this could have been avoided. All of this could have been fixed easier. This all could have been so different. So much chaos. But so much chaos. And for what? Yeah. Um, For what? Many of those arrested had no criminal record. 251 whites, 678 black. Of those arrested, 64% were accused of looting and 14% were charged with curfew violations. 2,509 businesses reported looting or damage. 388 families were rendered homeless or displaced, and 412 buildings were burned or damaged enough to be demolished. Losses from property damage ranged from 40 to $45 million. Insanity. Mayor Kavanaugh said about the damage, Today we stand amidst the ashes of our hopes. We hoped against hope that what we had been doing was enough to prevent a riot. It was not enough. Well, no, it wasn't enough. The scale of the riot was the worst in the United States since the 1863 New York City draft riots during the American Civil War. And it was not surpassed until the 1992 Los Angeles riots 25 years later. So getting into some more um, specifics of the deaths. 43 died, 33 black, 10 white. Among the black deaths... 14 were shot by police officers, 9 were shot by National Guardsmen, 6 were shot by store owners or security guards, 2 were killed by asphyxiation from a building fire, 1 was killed after stepping on a downed power line, and 1 was shot by a federal soldier. The National Guardsmen and Detroit police were found to have engaged in uncontrolled and unnecessary firing and endangered civilians and increased police chaos. It has been suggested that the presence of snipers was imagined or exaggerated by officials, and some of the military and law enforcement casualties 
could have instead been friendly fire. Bingo. Yep. That's where I was thinking. That's yep. exactly what I was thinking. One black civilian, Albert Robinson, was killed by a National Guardsman responding with Detroit police to an apartment building on the city's west side. Ernest Rockmore, a black teenager who was the last to die in civil unrest, was killed by Army paratroopers on July 29th when caught in their crossfire, directed towards someone else. The police shot three other individuals during the same firefight, with one victim needing his leg amputated. Jack Snyder was a black sniper who fired upon police and wounded one police officer in the street. The police came close to the building where the sniper lived and ambushed in the third story building uh, room by shooting him, making Sindor the only sniper killed during the riot. Among the whites who died were five civilians, two firefighters, one looter, one police officer, and one guardsman. Of the... White sworn personnel killed. Two firefighters died with one stepping on a down power line during attempts to extinguish a fire started by looters, while the other was shot while organizing fire units at Mac and St. Uh, John. One officer was shot by a looter while struggling with a group of looters, and one guardsman was shot by fellow guardsmen while being caught in the crossfire by fellow National Guardsmen firing on a vehicle which failed to stop at the roadblock. Of the white civilians killed, two were shot by National Guardsmen, of whom one was staying at her hotel room and was mistaken for a sniper. One was shot as she and her husband tried to drive away from a group of black riders beating a white civilian. One was shot by police while working as a security guard trying to protect a store from looters. One was beaten to death by a black rider after confronting looters in his store. Only one white looter was killed by police while trying to steal a car part at a junkyard on the outskirts of the city. Why are we policing a junkyard? It's a junkyard. Exactly. <laughs> That's just my, that was my thought there. So uh, another aspect of the riots was the Algiers Motel incident, also called the Algiers Motel murders. That occurred in Detroit throughout the night of July 25th through 26, 1967, during the 12th Street Riot. At the Algiers Motel, approximately one mile east of where the riot began, three civilians were killed and nine others abused by a riot task force comprised of Detroit Police Department, Michigan State Police, and the Michigan Army National Guard. Three teenage boys were killed and two white women and seven black men were wounded. The task force was searching the area after reports were received that a gunman or a group of gunmen, possibly snipers, had been seen at or near the motel. And the three boys that were killed included Carl Cooper, 17, Fred Temple, 18, and Aubrey Pollard, 19. One death is unexplained as the body was allegedly found by responding officers. Two deaths have been attributed to justifiable homicide or self-defense. Charges of felonious assault, conspiracy, murder, and conspiracy to commit civil rights abuse were filed against three officers. Charges of assault and conspiracy were also filed on a private security guard. All were found not guilty. So there's a list of deaths with their names, their age, and then what happened. So I'll just list some of them off. Jason Jones, 15, was sitting under a tree when a gang of white males were running from the police and exchanging fire and he was hit in the chest. 
Willie Hunter, 26, and Prince Williams, 32, were found in the basement of Brown's drugstore, believed to have died when the store burned down, possibly from asphyxiation from the smoke. Sharon George, 23, was shot while in the car driven by her husband Ross as they tried to flee a group of black men beating a white man. Clifton Pryor, 23, was mistaken for a sniper while trying to keep sparks from a neighboring fire off the roof of his apartment building. He was shot by a National Guardsman. Herman Ector, 30, was shot by a security guard while attempting to intervene between the guard and a group of rioters. Fred Williams, 49, was electrocuted when he stepped on a down power line. Nathaniel Edmonds was killed by Richard Sugar, a 24-year-old white male who accused Edmonds of breaking into a store and shot him in the chest with a shotgun, and Sugar was convicted of second-degree murder. Carl Smith, 30, was a firefighter shot by a black male while attempting to organize firefighter units to fight several fires at Mac and St. John. That was the one I mentioned earlier. Then there was Tony Blanding that we discussed. Helen Hall, 51, a native of Illinois, was visiting Detroit on business and stayed at the Harlan House Motel. Hearing tanks rolling by, she peeked through the drape window to see what was going on, and she was shot by a National Guardsman who mistook her for a sniper. Albert Robinson, 38, shot and bayoneted by a National Guardsman Wednesday evening after they stormed an apartment building at Davidson and LaSalle Boulevard in search of snipers. He died August 5th at Detroit General Hospital. Bayoneted. How do you just, right. How do you just randomly bayonet someone? Yeah. Oh, Krikor George Miserillian, 68, an Armenian immigrant business owner, was beaten to death by Daryl McCurtis, a 20-year-old black male after Miserillian confronted black looters. Roy Banks, 46, was a deaf man walking to a bus stop to go to work. He was shot by guardsmen who mistook him for an escaping looter. Going to work. And then the last one I'll read through is John Ashby, 26, a Detroit firefighter electrocuted by high-tension wire that had fallen while he was trying to put out a fire started by rioters. And additional deaths included those of those killed while looting or caught by stray bullets. So in the aftermath... Nationally, the riots confirmed for the military in the Johnson administration that military occupation of American cities would be necessary. Some positives, though, I guess, would be state and local governments responded with an increase in minority hiring. On August 18, 1967, the state police department swore in the first black trooper in its 50-year history. In May 1968, Detroit Mayor Kavanaugh appointed a special task force on police recruitment and hiring. 35% of the police hired by Detroit in 1968 were black, and by July 1972, blacks made up more than 14% of the Detroit police, more than double their percentage in 1967. In the aftermath, the Greater Detroit Board of Commerce launched a campaign to find jobs for 10,000 previously unemployable persons, that was a quote, many of whom were black. In one of the biggest changes after the riot, automakers and retailers lowered their entry-level job requirements. As for housing issues, the Michigan Historical Review wrote, The Michigan Fair Housing Act, which took effect on November 15, 1968, was stronger than the federal fair housing law. 
and then just about all the existing state fair housing acts. It is probably more than a coincidence that the state that had experienced the most severe racial disorder of the 1960s also adopted one of the strongest state fair housing acts. As a result of the rioting in the summer of 1967 and the preceding two years, President Lyndon B. Johnson established the Kerner Commission to investigate the rioting and urban issues of black Americans. And that's a whole other, (laughs) that's a whole other thing I don't have time to get into. But if any listeners have any stories they'd like to share about either their experience with the Detroit riots or their families, if they know of any, or of any other events in their town, uh, feel free to email us at themichiganmurders at gmail.com or send us a message on our Facebook page. Yeah, Um, absolutely. We'd love to hear. And then maybe we can read your submissions on future episodes. So supply us with content. Um, And then the last thing about this too, I should mention, I didn't get to watch it because I couldn't find where it would be available, but apparently the Detroit Free Press produced a documentary about it called 12th and Claremont. So if anybody wants to watch that, it looked like it should have been on Amazon Prime. Like it was up there, but then it said it's not currently available. Somebody on Detroit Free Press, send me a copy, please. <laughs> right. <sighs> so that was a lot. That was a long one. Yeah. And it's truly sad things could have gone so much differently. Yeah. You think about the the time and the race issues and everything else. I mean, it's still not that it's not a problem anymore. I mean, it's still constantly an issue. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a native person that looks white, so. Right. <laughs> it's a little weird <laughs> right? But for me to talk about racial right. issues. And, yeah, and, and my side, I mean, my bio dad's side is all Hispanic and, like, French, but mom's side is all the, the Dutch and German, so I look very much like every other white person, <laughs> even though. My name is Hispanic. And we look like everything else is Spanish. basic bitches. Is what we're trying we to say. Do, we, do, we do so we don't have the the, the same I, I get it. It's just I've seen so much going on still in listening to this. It's it's sad to see how much hasn't changed. Like mm-hmm. you would think for, you know, so long oh, things can't be as bad as they used to be. The 60s weren't that long ago. No. I mean, you think about it. That wasn't that long ago. Yeah, it's not really. Less than 100 years. Yeah. And beyond that, there's so many things that are still happening and continuing to happen that were happening then. That it's like, why hasn't this been fixed yet? It is 2022. Get it together. It takes, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And I think that, I mean, you look at the Gen Alpha kids, I think they're going to lead the way, even though I'm annoyed with them for stuff that they don't know. But I'm like, (laughs) what do you mean you don't know what a rotary phone is? I think they're being taught to see the world in a completely different way. Because their parents weren't seeing 
you know, the race rights and stuff that like my and your parents did. So they're a little more removed. And I think that, I don't know, they're leading the way. I think they're going to do good things. Yeah. And I mean, so many changes have already been made, but it's like, we need to, we need to keep going. And like you said, I think Gen Z and Gen Alpha are like, (laughs) ooh, Gen Z, I'm scared of that. They are vicious, and I'm here for it. I am all here for it. Like I don't mind it if it's not directed at me. I don't like being called old right. all the time. Thank you. Stop, stop making fun of my side part, guys. <laughs> I swear, it's great. Just Though, we're not bringing back low-rise jeans. I will fight them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I think that they're going to they're gonna change so many things for the better and I just hope that we're still here to see it yeah I hope so too but thank you so much for listening everybody and be safe and watch out for the cravesies out there bye Bye. thank you for listening to this week's episode the music titled teller of the tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io